Good morning. Welcome to Emmaus Church Community. My name is Nathan. Great to see all of you here today. Thanks for joining us online. If you're uh, at home or in the hospital today, we're glad that you're with us in this way. Raise your hand if, you like a, if you'd like a Bible. Because we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, we're going to preach out of it. We base our teachings on it. We'd love to hand you a copy. You can follow along. Today I'm going to be in this letter of Paul's called Philippians. It's near the end of the Bible. I think it's page 818, but there's also a page of a sermon notes page. Because we believe that this isn't just entertainment, this is, it's probably not very entertaining at all actually, but because it's, uh, this is instruction unto formation, we always create a notes page and that's, the hope is that you'll follow along, you'll, you'll uh, write down things that stand out, things that ca- kind of happen in your heart and mind as you hear the sermon preached. So the notes, page are import, the notes page is important, and if you're new with us today, um, there's also communication cards. If you'd like to hand off a prayer request or give us your contact information, that's used simply to send out a, a weekly newsletter that's like three things happening this week kind of a thing. Um, we do that because we really value community. We really want to be connected, learn names, and we're small enough church uh, that we can do that, and, uh, and it's, it's an advantage and a blessing. All right. Excited to start this with you today. Last Sunday, I was talking to my, my older son. He's 19. I was talking to him on the phone Sunday night uh, in the evening, and I was surprised at the level of emotion that accompanied one of the comments that he made to me. Um, one of my burdens as I parent young adult children is the sheer amount of disappointment that they've experienced over the last 18 months or, or so, the volume of important, meaningful uh, really kind of critical season in life experiences that have either been canceled completely or just really diminished. And, and the way that I see that affecting them and sort of shifting their general perspective on life, I mean, everybody experiences disappointments. It's part of life. You get over it. It's going to be okay. But, but I've become concerned about the destructive potential of disappointment after disappointment after disappointment after disappointment at an age in life when, at least for me, it was potential, possibility, launching, what do you want to do with your life, anything's possible. I felt like my view of myself and what I could do in life accelerated in college, and I feel like many of our students are having just wet blankets laid over them all of the time. I think kids are amazingly resilient. They're going to do stuff that is beyond our expectations, I think. But there is a point in a person's capacity where bad news reaches its limit. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where it ceases to roll off of you like water off a duck's back and it starts to stick. And then because it sticks, it begins to erode. And what what does it erode? It erodes confidence. It erodes hope. And it erodes joy. Ah, and I know it, I've experienced it, I've seen it so many times, and as everyone knows, because everyone's been affected, there's been an awful lot of bad news in the last 18 months or whatever, and as a parent, the cumulative impact of that news on the hearts and minds of my children, it's just a, it's a, it's something I'm paying a lot of attention to. I'm trying to pay attention to this. I'm trying to monitor, watch, ask questions about, and appropriately respond to it. 
So I'm talking to my 19-year-old son last Sunday night, and I'm asking him about the, ta- the, the typical stuff, sort of the classic things I know he's involved in, situations, challenges I know he's facing. And he's a fighter, so his perspective is, just got to grind, Dad, just got to put it down, just got to keep working hard. And then came the comment that really caught my attention. He said, Dad, the canyon's on fire. And uh, it was the way he said it that made me notice. Um, it wasn't like he was just... Um, sharing, like, information with me that he heard on the news. There was, um, there was emotion connected to this. This was the issue that was front of mind for him. This was the issue that packed an emotional punch for him. And, friends, it's because since he was two years old, we spend our days off at the river. Uh, we, we always take our kids down to the water. Um, when they got older, we taught them how to climb in the quarry. Uh, we rode bikes down there. We rafted down there. We just spent a lot of time down there. As they got older, they'd invite their friends along, and we'd have these great adventures down in the confluence at the canyon. And, and uh, then as he got older, it, it, like the parents kind of stopped being invited, and it was just friends going down there. And, and I noticed it was really interesting. I noticed in the, like the three or four weeks before he went to college in June, he was going down there all the time. He was spending a lot of time, sometimes all by himself, just hiking, climbing around. This is an important place for him. And so hearing that the canyon was on fire um, was the bad news that was occupying his mind. And I thought that was so interesting because there's so many things that could have been occupying his mind. That was the bad news that carried sort of emotional freight. That was the specific bad news that was kind of, as I pictured it, at the front of the long lineup of adversity. (laughs) That was the one at the front. That was the sad reality that was threatening his joy. What's yours? What's at the front of your mind? What's one thing you're concerned about? What's one thing that you could point to? It's like, I kind of have some anxiety about that. Um, What's one thing that has the potential to, to rob joy from you today? encourage you to write, this, write that down, and, um, and may God use this teaching to uh, help us navigate through these challenges. Uh, we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about anxiety and joy, and my intent is not to, you know, wallow together in anxiety, but I do want to acknowledge what is pretty evident, which is that there's a lot of anxiety around right now. Many of us are wrestling with very real challenges. There's deep pain. There's significant loss. Uh, this continual battling with profound injustice, and it's causing a marked rise in fear and anxiety. Uh, every space is acknowledging this. Well, why do you want to talk about that then? I want to talk about it, friends, because we have access to spiritual wisdom that knows the way to joy through all this anxiety. Amen? We have access to spiritual wisdom that knows the way to joy in and through and even in the midst of anxiety, fear, and all the things that seem to rob the joy. We're going to spend the next seven weeks reading a letter that Paul wrote to a set of Christians in Europe in a city called Philippi. The letter is called Philippians. Paul, uh, Paul's letters often address a specific error in thinking, a doctrine, a problem 
but not Philippians. This is a profoundly encouraging letter. This is a letter, classic letter, known for its, its, um, its focus on joy. And the reason that this is so remarkable is that the people to whom Paul writes are being persecuted for their faith. And the person writing the letter, that is the Apostle Paul, did you know he's writing this in jail? Like he can't go too far because he's chained to a wall. So this is not some lightweight, feel-good, you know, unicorns and sparkles, the happy thought for the afternoon. No, this is like hardcore, battle-tested, real, like actual wisdom, how to work through crippling anxiety and, and experience sustaining joy, even as the sources of our anxiety and adversity continue to rage all around us. In other words, this is not a book about how to find joy after prison. This is a book about how to find joy in prison. So I'm going to spend some time in the next week um, talking about the political context, the cultural context. I have way too much to say already, so I'm going to not do that part today. But let's jump right into the letter itself. Here's the basic outline. We're going to look at Paul's outline. We're going to look at Paul's note. We're going to note Paul's joy. Did I say outline? I meant to say Paul's introduction. Then we're going to note Paul's joy, and then we're going to focus on this prayer that Paul prays to start the letter. Here's the introduction to Paul's letter to the Christians in Philippi. This is what he writes. In ancient letters, they identify the writer first, which is initially different from our culture. So it begins, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, they're identifying this is who's writing it. Here comes the dear, or the two, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This greeting is packed. There's so much great stuff. I preached a whole sermon on this greeting. Uh, it reveals so many things. Let me point out just three. First, Paul describes himself and Timothy as servants of the Lord Jesus. And the word he uses there is doulos or doulos. It's more commonly understood as slave. I think in modern English, we prefer the word servant to slave because of the negative connotations with the word slave. But to be sure, Paul does not see being a doulos of Christ as a negative thing. He sees it as a positive thing. Paul is saying right out of the gate, it should make us notice, friends, especially in the context of a conversation about joy, that Paul is a slave to Christ. This is how he begins his letter. He is a slave to Christ. In an earlier letter to Christians in Rome, Paul contrasts being a slave to sin against being a slave to the Holy Spirit. Slave is a harsh word. In our culture, for obvious reasons, a lot of negative associations. Paul seems to use the word as a positive thing for two reasons. The first is he's a slave to Christ voluntarily, not through coercion. He is, he is chosen to respond to the offer of grace and to submit to Christ. He is a slave to Christ voluntarily. Some old translations will say he is a bond servant. He's, he's accepted this. <clears throat> and the second reason that this is a positive thing, is that the one who is a slave to Christ, in Paul's mind, is a slave to nothing else, is free from sin, to be specific. You cannot have two masters. So Paul, in his greeting, is saying he belongs entirely to Jesus, which is a statement that carries significant freight, considering Paul is writing this letter from within the walls of probably a Roman prison cell, where he is chained 
because he's been preaching about Jesus. So first thing Paul's greeting reveals is that he belongs to Jesus entirely. Note this, the joy he's going to talk about, friends, is connected to belonging to Jesus. Okay? First observation. Write that down. The joy that we're about to hear in the next few weeks is is related, it's connected to belonging to Jesus. Secondly, he's writing to all who are holy. Some, Some translations say it like this. To all the saints... Together with the overseers, also can be translated bishops and deacons. In other words, those who are ordained to leadership roles in the community of faith and those who aren't, everybody, all the saints, all the holy ones. Paul is writing to the whole church, not just the leaders. The message is for everybody, everyone who's been set apart for God. So second observation, the joy Paul is going to talk about is connected to being holy, which just means being set apart for God. Joy is connected to being a slave. Joy is connected to being a saint. Third in his greeting, he says, grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot here. We'll get into it in the next couple weeks. Essentially, harmony to you, from God the Father and God the Son who are in perfect harmony. Paul is shining a big light on God the Father and God the Son as the source of the kind of joy he's about to talk about. God is the source of joy. So Paul is going to talk about this joy that is from God, God is the source, for people who are set apart for God's purpose, saints, who also belong entirely to Jesus, slaves. In the greeting itself, Paul essentially declares, if you're a slave in Christ and you're a saint in Christ, you don't have to be anxious about anything. Can you hear already that this is like another level (laughs) from what typical self-help stuff just fills shelves and minds and Instagram posts today? I found myself this week going, oh, I'm not sure I actually do want to be joyful. (laughs) If If this is talking about being fully devoted and actually belonging entirely to Christ, this is, this is not a letter about joy for lightweights. Paul's like, you guys can like read chicken soup for your soul or whatever. I'm in prison and I'm dealing with the real stuff. So we're going to get real. All right, here's what Paul writes next, verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Like, till he comes back. That's what that means. Now, several weeks ago, I preached a sermon about the household out of Acts 16. Five weeks before that, Melissa preached a sermon out of Acts 16 on the topic of worship. I'm going to remind you about the content of Acts chapter 16 Because it's specifically related to what Paul says here, partnership in the gospel. 
All right, so this really fast, Acts 16 is the story of Paul's second missionary journey. It's his first trip into Europe. The first convert to Christianity in Europe is a woman named Lydia. She and her whole household are baptized, and then she invites Paul and his companions to her house. She says, if you consider me a part of the household of God, come be part of my household. And Paul and his friends do. Next, Paul encounters this servant girl, this slave girl, who is owned by these two men who are making, quote, a great deal of money because of her ability through some weird spiritual possession to to tell the future. Paul commands the spirit possessing the little girl to come out. It leaves her when her owners realize their hope of making money off this little girl is is gone. They and others attack Paul and his friend Silas. They drag him to Roman officials who beat them severely and put him in jail. At midnight that night, Paul and Silas are in jail, and they're praising God. They're singing hymns to God, and an earthquake happens, breaks the doors of the jail open, chains fall off. The jailer's about to kill himself out of shame. Paul says, don't do it. We're all here. The guy comes and says, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and be baptized. The guy takes Paul and Silas to his own house, like takes care of his wounds, feeds him food, and he and his whole household are baptized. Why are we reviewing Acts chapter 16? Because this is when the church in Philippi starts. This is the beginning of the church of Philippi. When Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for you, all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, he's remembering the Acts. He's remembering the events of Acts 16. This partnership with the Philippians was born out of suffering. It was born out of adversity. It was born in persecution. Who were the first Christians in Europe? A Greek woman, a slave girl, a Roman jailer. This is incredible. And their whole households. These were people who partnered with Paul, the, like the mega apostle. These are his partners. This is amazing. From the first day until now. They're still partnering with him? Why does Paul always pray with joy when he prays for the Philippians? Because of their partnership with him from the beginning. And because Paul is confident that he who began a good work in them will will fulfill it, will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, he prays with joy because he knows their partnership will continue to the end. I, can, I imagine that you have tasted this unparalleled joy that comes from believing. I have a partner. I'm not by myself. Others are helping me with this project, with this challenge, with this life. There is beautiful joy. There is, I think, an unparalleled joy that comes in knowing I'm not alone. There's others around me. There's others who are going to help me with this. So if you're keeping track, Paul in the greeting connects joy to God. God is the source of joy, to being a saint, being set apart for God's purpose, and being a slave to Christ or belonging entirely to Christ. And then he explicitly says that the reason that his prayers for the Philippians are prayers of joy is because he knows they're in this together. The word he uses is koinonia. It's the word for fellowship that means we have the same father and we're doing the same work because we have the same father. We're family. 
We're in this together, and there's this deep joy that comes from that. Verse 7, Paul continues, It is right for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, in other words, whether I'm in jail or I'm out preaching, All of you share in God's grace with me. Same word, different form. Share in. You participate in. Participating in the same Father, participating in the same work. You share in God's grace with me. He prays with joy because of confident partnership. He knows they're in this together. They're in this together with God. And then he gets even more specific, friends. Follow this. About their partnership. He says, all of you share in God's grace with me. Grace for what? Grace for what? For suffering. They share in the suffering that he's experiencing. They share in the grace that he's receiving to not be devastated and defeated by the suffering. They're experiencing it too. Remember, Paul's in chains and he's writing to people who are being persecuted for their faith. The joy that he's experiencing is not circumstantial. The joy he's experiencing is not situational. His body is in chains, but his heart is joyful. How is that even possible? He says we're suffering together. We're enduring together by God's grace. That's how it's possible. And there's this deep joy that comes in this partnership. He's not alone. They're also suffering with him. The joy comes from shared suffering. It's not a giddy happiness. It's a sustaining joy. We're, we're suffering together. And you're not going to quit, and I'm not going to quit. Right? And then he ends this thought with this powerful statement. It is almost an indescribable expression of love. Look at verse 8. Paul says, God can testify how I long for you with all of the affection of Christ Jesus. How I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. God knows, in other words, how much I love you. And the implication is, and you know. God knows, and you know, we've suffered together, we've sweat together, we've bled together. Like Angela said last week when she preached about sharing one another's burdens, when you share life with someone, you don't have to ask, what do you need? You already know. You already know what they need because you're sharing life with them. So you get it. You know. This is just a Bible nerd side uh, bar. Ready? This is so funny to me. Have you heard of the organ in the human body called a spleen? I don't even know what the spleen does. Somebody can explain that to me later. Paul says, when Paul says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Big translation happening there. The word is splanknon, which means it's the word from which we get the word spleen. How is, what? And so, so there's an, what is this? What this is is an ancient way of referring to this indescribable affection that comes from within. We say, because we see affection as kind of the seat of affection is the heart, or maybe this, we, we, say, we say like, I heart New York, right? We, I, I, we use heart. I love you with my whole heart. Ancients would say, I love you with my whole spleen. They would. They would say that. 
Because that's the seed of the emotion. It's, it's, sometimes it's translated, I love you with my intestines. I mean, ah, that's weird. But it's this like deep, oh, it's like this, I feel it. I can't even express it. I just think that's so funny. So imagine, imagine Paul sends this letter to the Philippians, and it just blesses them. And so this Philippian, this sweet Philippian, she just texts back, thanks for the letter, Paul. I, I mean, it was so great. And if Paul loved that text, he would just hit that spleen emoji with that. That's what he do. And it's like, you just keep moving on, but. <laughs> that was a joke. I actually made a joke. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I worked on that. I did. I worked on that. I wanted an intestine emoji, but they were nasty, so I just, and there actually isn't one. That's weird. Okay, so Paul is, he's praying with this deep gut level, God is my witness for the saints who have partnered with him in slavery to Christ like nobody else has. It's as if Paul is saying, I don't have the words to express the power of my longing for you. It is impossible to describe. God only knows how much I long for you. There's this deep gut level affection that, that I have for you because we have suffered together and you have continued to partner with me. It's just beautiful. So to sum up, we've looked at how Paul's greeting essentially forecasts the content of the letter in his greeting, he says, if you're a slave to Christ, you belong to him. If you're one of Christ's saints, you're devoted to his purpose, you don't need to worry. You don't need to be anxious. And then we asked, why does Paul always pray with joy when he prays for the Philippians? That's an interesting statement. Answer, because they're his friends, because they're his partners, because they've suffered with him, because they've shared in the grace for continual suffering with him. So we know why Paul prays with joy, because they're in it with him. But we haven't yet heard what Paul prays, have we? When Paul prays for the Christians in Philippi, what do you think he prays? Let's find out. Let's wrap up with this. Verse 9. <clears throat> and this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. It's classic Paul. It's so dense. It just keeps going on and on. Here's what he's praying. That their love may abound, abounding love, beyond measure, in depth of insight, so that they can discern what is best. Because there's a lot of bad news swirling around Paul, and there's a lot of bad news swirling around the Christians in Philippi. There's a lot of really challenging cultural issues to navigate. There's challenging political issues to navigate. There's cultural differences right in the church because there's people from different races and backgrounds in the church in Philippi. So there's all kinds of challenges. In other words, they actually need to figure out how to, how to live as Christians in a non-Christian culture. Like we actually need to figure out how to live as Christians in a non-Christian culture. And so Paul prays that their love will abound. And he prays that they'll have knowledge and depth of insight. 
One ancient Christian puts it like this, that they'll be able to distinguish what is useful from what is useless. There's a prayer for the week. As you're scrolling the news, God, give me discernment to know the difference between what is useful and what is useless. Another Christian puts it like this, an ancient Christian, Chrysostom, that they will not receive any corrupted doctrine under the pretense of love. Whoo, that's good. That they will not receive any corrupted doctrine under the pretense or in the guise of or sort of positioned as, as love. And then this, Paul prays that they may be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness. He's talking about living out and experiencing the results of a righteous life. In other words, Paul prays that the people in the church will love one another. The people in the church will know what to do and how to live. The people in the church, whatever they do, because you know they're not always going to agree, will be pure and blameless, not manipulative, not two-faced, so that they will experience the results of living a righteous life. Results like what exactly? Like joy, friends. Like joy. Like real joy in the face of real adversity. Real joy that is sustained through real anxiety and ultimately wins the battle. Amen? I know that's a ton of content. So we're going to shift the order of our gathering a little bit today. And I want to lead us into a, if you could come up, Melissa, and just play. Um, I'm going to lead us through a, like a guided prayer, and then we'll move right into communion. We'll do some of the community stuff at the very end. I'm just going to lead us in a prayer slowly, take another minute or two for this. And I just want to invite you to, to kind of step-by-step step pray through what Paul lays out in the first chapter of his book, or his letter to the Philippians. You're welcome to pray in the front at the altar if you like, or at your seats, or stand up and move around. Let's pray together. Help us to believe that you, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are the source of our joy. are the source of our joy. I pray for grace to belong entirely to you, that we will be your doulos, your bondservants, your slaves by choice, that we will not be slaves to anyone or anything else. May we be yours completely. May we not follow false saviors, counterfeit liberators, inferior lovers of our soul. And God, may we be fully devoted to your holy purpose for our lives. Make us saints of Christ. 
God, I pray you'd call to mind those you've called us to partner with in this life. We pray for our friends. Pray for our colleagues. Pray for our family. Pray for our spouse, if we're married. Pray for our church. And we pray that our partnerships with others, church, family, spouse, work, our partnership with others would be a source of joy, would cause us to be joyful. You're with me in this. And in your mercy, Lord, may we, may our shared suffering, our shared burdens, our shared concerns, the fact that there are there are those who get it. There are those who know the same kind of pain. There are those who experience a similar grace that we share as we face similar kinds of pain. May it not just bind us together, but also give us a joy in the face of suffering. May we know that it is grace that sustains us. May we know that Satan will not defeat us. Even when things look really dark and it's like we're in a prison all alone. And finally, Lord, may our love abound. May our insight and knowledge to know what to do and how to live, may it abound. May our purity and righteousness abound. And may we be filled with joy, Lord. Please fill us with deep, sustaining joy.